Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. So I'm going to start actually by reading just the prologue in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. This is the longest sentence in the Bible. So, Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence, that you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. Okay, so this prologue of Luke actually does talk a little bit about what his intention is. The, the Gospel of Luke, like all the other Gospels, are written as books of faith, so they're intended to be books to help people who believe to be able to know something of the certainty of their belief. Now, sometimes people can take Gospels and, and take them in one or two directions too far to the extreme. One would say that everything that is written in a Gospel is literal history. Well, the problem with that approach is it really negates any of the, the theological um, aspects of the Gospel. Um, just to give you a brief example of that, let's say you're looking at the carrying of the cross. So, so in Luke's Gospel, you have Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross of Jesus, and then in John's Gospel, it says Jesus picked up the cross and carried it himself. And so people who are too much into the literal uh, part of the Gospel to look at those discrepancies, and they might say that, well, you know, the Gospels don't agree, so they can't be true. Well, what they're missing, though, is there are different theological perspectives. In John's Gospel, he wants to show that Jesus was in control. He went to his death willingly, and he went to his death without being uh, like dragged to it, that it was his own choice and he did it. So it shows that he has the power to make that decision and he carries his own cross. Whereas if you look at Luke's gospel, he brings Simon of Cyrene into the equation. And the reason why he did that is he wanted to show, first of all, the idea of a disciple carrying their own cross and following after Jesus. And the other reason is, is it just shows the human aspect of how we're all supposed to pick up our crosses and follow after Jesus. And the Simon of Cyrene was, was doing something that disciples should do. So it, it just has to do with deep, different uh, theological um, perspectives. They're both true, but they're focusing on different things. Now, the opposite of this are people who say, they look at the scripture and they say, oh, it's just all made up by a bunch of believers, then it's not based in anything historical. Well, the error they make is just, if you looked at Luke's introduction, he's saying, I have decided after investigating everything accurately anew to write it down in orderly sequence. And so he's doing this so that the readers will know that it's not just a fairy tale, you know, that's grounded in history and it's grounded in actual events. And so this is kind of the middle ground that the church has always taken when it comes to understanding Scripture. So I'm not going to get into to all of that so much. Um, I just wanted to bring that out is that if we're looking at St. Luke's Gospel, remember that it won't always exactly match up to the other Gospels when it comes to the passion of Jesus. For the most part, it does, but there are different themes and there are different aspects that St. Luke wants to pull into his gospel that some of the other evangelists you know, might want to emphasize other areas. So it's just something to keep in mind as we go. So we'll start out with a little prayer, and then we'll get right to it. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So Father, in this season of Lent, as we focus on the cross, we want to ask your help to be able to help us to understand the sacrifice of your Son, uh, what it means for us in our lives, and what it means for our salvation. We give you thanks for the evangelists, and in particular, St. Luke, who dedicated himself to the writing of this gospel for the edification of his followers and for us. We ask you to bless us this Lenten season and help us as we draw closer to the passion 
um, that we will understand the reality of the events, um, especially as we celebrate Palm Sunday, that when we hear this gospel, it'll help us to be able to focus and to appreciate your goodness. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, so, so we do have some common themes in the Gospel of St. Luke that are very particular to his Gospel. Now, it's not that these themes won't be in other Gospels as well, but Luke in particular emphasizes these themes. So the first one here is the idea of discipleship, and especially a disciple that is one who depends on God for everything. So if you notice in in Luke's gospel, when you read it, he's got a real emphasis on the poor and the humble. Um, He's got a special place in his heart as he's writing this gospel for people who would be considered the outcast, uh, people who would be considered uh, marginalized in society. And he elevates those people to a very high status, including the poor, the women, and even the Gentiles. And so you'll see them oftentimes as the people who are of faith, and the people who are held up as the ideal of faith. And so you have that combination going on in Luke's gospel, much, much more so than some of the others. Um, also in Luke's gospel, you've got the effectiveness of prayer being emphasized. Uh, Jesus, at, at many of these peak moments, he, he's praying. He goes off and he prays, and it, it really uh, makes that specific in Luke's gospel. Um, where Jesus doesn't just act, he's always in prayer, and he's always connecting with his Father. Um, an interesting thing about Luke's Gospel is it's less graphic than the other Gospels, especially uh, the Gospel of Mark. In Mark's Gospel, it tends to explain things in very graphic detail, and the crucifixion of Jesus in Mark's Gospel is much more um, graphic in a way that, that really brings out those details of the suffering and the death. Whereas uh, Luke sanitizes things just a little bit. Um, he must have been a very nice guy, you know, because you kind of pick that up as you go to. He, he's very proper. Um, just to give you little examples, like in Mark's gospel, when they drop the paralytic down through the thatch roof, they're like tearing the roof off and dropping them down and in Luke's gospel, they're just slowly removing the tiles, you know. He's, he's just one who's, he's very proper. Also, something else about Luke is that his Greek is some of the most eloquent Greek that we have in the New Testament. And so with the, the book of Hebrews and the gospel of Luke, um, which makes it a little more difficult to translate because he uses some of the bigger words than, for example, John or Mark. So, but anyway... That's just kind of part of the style of, of Luke, that he's a little less graphic when it comes to um, any of the gore and the details. Luke especially loves those suffering servant prophecies, especially from Isaiah. And so you'll see that coming out throughout his gospel. Um, Jesus, who is the epitome and the fulfillment of those prophecies of the suffering servant. And you all know what that is, right? Um, when you read like Isaiah and you're, you're seeing those descriptions of the Messiah who doesn't open his mouth and he's like a sheep, and, and these images of this Messiah who is one who suffers for the sake of his people, you know, because he makes a really strong connection with that. Um, Luke also shows the crowds as being more sympathetic to Jesus and his gospel than the leaders. And Luke also shows a progression where it starts out in his gospel that everybody loved Jesus and everything he said, they're all, but that very soon you could see it starting to turn. And little by little as you go through the gospel, you see first the religious leaders and those in power who turn against Jesus. And then slowly you'll see eventually everyone will. But except for, of course, you know, some disciples and the women who were following But there's a progression that happens in his gospel. And for the most part, the crowds are looked at much more favorably, or they look at Jesus much more favorably in in Luke's gospel. Luke has a very strong emphasis on justice, and especially the justice of Jesus, who is the innocent one. And there's this idea, especially in, in the parables, as well as the teachings of Jesus, that there's this real concern about people who tend to be victims of injustice and how God will exact his justice in the fullness of time. And you see that lived out in Jesus, especially in the crucifixion and the resurrection, that Jesus is the personification of the justice 
of the Father with someone who has to suffer injustice. So that, that kind of works its way through there quite a bit too. Um, you'll also see in Luke's Gospel that, especially with the Passion, that Jesus will be living his teaching as he's even brought to his own trials and his own um, death, that everything he teaches his disciples, he actually lives himself. So it's not like he's saying that everyone needs to do something and then he doesn't do it. So the emphasis that he has on following the will of the Father and the emphasis he has on being a, uh, someone who doesn't um, strike back and retaliate, all these things are going to be lived out in the way that Jesus was brought to the cross. And then the last part is that Jesus is often portrayed as the rejected prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, most of the great prophets were also persecuted themselves. People didn't always want to hear what the prophet had to say. And oftentimes, you you get the uh, descriptions of the suffering that the prophets went through, including Isaiah, including Jeremiah, and many of the others, and Amos. And you read the Old Testament accounts, and, you know, like Jeremiah, for example, they throw him in a mud pit and he's sinking. And, you know, you just get this image that it wasn't fun to be a prophet in the Old Testament either. But Jesus, who is the prophet of prophets, is in a similar vein rejected by his people. But in the end, they will see the error of their ways, just like they did with the other prophets. So it's kind of part of the, the whole thing that goes on here. All right, so we'll go to the beginning. Now, sometimes it has been explained that all of the Gospels, for that matter, are what they really are, are the description of the passion and death of Jesus, and they put a prologue and an ending on that. So the main story of any Gospel that you read is really about the death of Jesus. And then they'll have the conclusion where God's justice is vindicated and he rises from the dead and the glorious uh, resurrection comes from that. And you have the beginning of the Gospels which lead up to his death, which are basically pointing to his death itself. And so sometimes you'll hear that description among scripture scholars that that all the Gospels really are just descriptions of his death with prologues and beginnings, or prologues and, and conclusions. And it's kind of that way in Luke's gospel. From the very beginning, here's Jesus. He's just born. And you have this description from Simeon, the prophet, in Luke chapter 2. So Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted. And you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And so you all know about that, you know, Mary's sword, right? The piercing her heart. Well, um, what that is, is the passion of Jesus. That the sword that will pierce her heart is watching her son suffer and die. You know, that's going to be her sword. And in religious art, you'll often see Mary's heart with the sword through it. And uh, some religious uh, um, devotions, you'll have the seven sorrows of Mary and you'll see the seven swords. But anyway, the main sword is Jesus' death. And so from the beginning, Jesus is just born, and already you have the prophecy that he is going to be someone of contradiction, and that there are going to be, you know, he's the rise of many and the fall of many. Basically, he's going to be this controversial figure that will really turn things upside down, and it will lead to Mary having that sorrow in her heart because of it. And so from the very beginning, basically, we have the the gospel pointing to the reality of the cross, which will come. Also in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, you've got the temptations, which we just heard last weekend. And there's the phrase in there, Satan departed from him for a time. Okay, so you all know the difference between time and and time in Greek. There's one that's uh, chronos, which is kind of like a clock, you know, chronological time. And then you've also got kairos, which is time, but in a way that means like the fullness of time, when the, the moment of truth, that's what it means. So Satan tempts Jesus, and you all know the story there that Jesus didn't give in. He was, you know, faithful to the Father's will, and in the end, Satan left him for a time. Now, the idea there is that Satan left him until the time was right for him 
to come back and, and start all over again, which basically was the beginning of the end of you know, Jesus' ministry, and then it would lead to that time where Jesus was going to be persecuted and then eventually killed. And so you'll, you'll see that coming back into the gospel just before Jesus goes to the cross. So that word kairos will come up again. Also, you have John the Baptist. Um, John the Baptist dies, and that is going to be a sign as well that John, who was the greatest of all prophets, according to Jesus and Luke's gospel, um, John the Baptist died, and he died because he told Herod that he shouldn't have married his brother, his brother's wife. And, of course, you know, you know the whole story behind that. But the point is that Jesus saw what happened to John the Baptist, who was also the greatest prophet. And Jesus, who is the prophet of prophets, knows that this is going to be the end result for him as well. And so John is a premonition of what will happen with Jesus as well. Okay, so John is kind of like the, uh, um, the vision before um, the actual cross. And so those things are all in the beginning of Luke's gospel, showing the direction that that would lead to. Okay, so now, there is the preparation that happens. And this is Luke's um, preparing his readers and those who would listen to the readings to know that Jesus eventually is being led toward the cross, that that's part of the Father's will. Um, But he does it little by little, and he kind of sets the stage. And so this also begins when Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And that prophecy that goes back to Isaiah refers to Jesus as the Messiah, who is also the suffering servant. Okay, so that, that goes back to that. Also, you have Jesus saying he must preach the good news and um, that, that, um, that gospel that he preaches also brings about discontent among certain people. And then Jesus' many cures, mil, uh, meals, his inclusions, like he's including women and tax collectors and outcasts. He's doing exorcisms. All these things are provoking especially those who are the leaders in the Jewish community. And so this is causing the tension that will eventually lead to the cross as well. And this happens in the very beginning. Now the rejected prophet, you can see this Luke chapter 13, verses 33 through 34. Jesus says, Yet I must continue on my way today, tomorrow, and the following day. For it's impossible that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. Okay, remember the rejected prophet? And here's Jesus saying once again that he is that prophet. And he mentions even himself that he has to go to Jerusalem because that's where all good prophets die. And so then he's got the prayer that goes with it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How many times I yearn to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were unwilling. So you can see the agony in Jesus's. He's, he's knowing what's coming, but at the same time, he's regretting the rejection that's going to happen because there's always a human cost and a human element to that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Okay, this is uh, Jesus's journey. This, this whole day... Luke is different also than some of the other Gospels because um, in Luke's Gospel, you have Jesus who starts in Galilee and there's a linear progression going from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so the, the Gospel is kind of a straight arrow toward that direction. And Luke chapter nine fifty one says specifically, when the days for his being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. Now, in the Greek, it's very, very uh, specific. It says he sets his face to Jerusalem. You know, so this, this means he's, he's got that intent and he's got that desire that he knows that's where he has to go and he goes and nothing's going to stop him. And what's that, like I said, Luke's gospel has Jesus going in the direction from Galilee to Jerusalem, almost like a straight line. In some of the other gospels, Jesus kind of travels all over the place, whereas uh, Luke's kind of like that. Now, 
Acts of the Apostles, which is also part of Luke's writing, then you have the journey going from Jerusalem to Rome. And so this is the second part, because you know Luke wrote Luke's Gospel as well as Acts of the Apostles. So it starts out in Luke, going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and then in Acts of the Apostles, it goes from Jerusalem to Rome. And so this whole journey motif kind of underlies the whole thing there. Okay, so there's another prophecy in Luke 18, 31. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. All right, so once again, he's, he's warning his disciples, he's taking them aside, and he's saying, everything written will be fulfilled, which means that he will be that suffering servant, the rejected prophet, he will go to his death. And he specifically says that even, that he is going to his death. Okay, so now we're going to get right to it. The beginning of the Passion. So the first part is the betrayal. And we all know the story of Judas and how Judas was the one who betrayed um, Jesus. Now, to... The difference between, for example, John's gospel and Luke's gospel is Luke tends to be a little more forgiving of Judas than John's gospel is. But uh, all the gospels, generally speaking, treat Judas as more than just a person because the disciples are symbolic of followers and believers of Jesus. And so Judas is symbolic of a disciple that makes the wrong decision. And so it's much greater than just the person of Judas. Judas is symbolic of how a disciple is not supposed to be. And so, you know, kind of remember that when you notice that, that Judas gets treated kind of harshly in the scriptures, you know, that it has to do with, with him being symbolic of that as well. Okay, so now, after the temptations, Satan was just kind of lurking in the background. He was kind of stirring the pot, but he wasn't doing anything very active. You know, Jesus was still walking through their midst. He was still doing his ministry. He was doing what he needed to do. But at this point, Satan now is on the attack. So this is the time. This is the, the time when Satan comes back into the picture after the temptation. And so you can even see it written in this way. So this is from Luke 22, 1 through 3. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was drawing near, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way Okay, that word way, an opportunity, that's the word kairos. All right, so the priests and the, and the scribes were seeking the time to put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Remember, remember Luke being favorable, the crowds being favorable to Jesus according to Luke's portrayal? Then Satan entered into Judas, the one surnamed Iscariot, who was counted among the twelve. Okay, so see how Satan was was kind of just lurking in the background and like, okay, now's the time. And so Satan's going for it. You know, he's, he's, he's going to be the one who's, you know, the time is ripe for him to, to make his move. You know, almost like a strategic thing. Okay, during the Passover, you've got um, more than I can get into today because what you're really looking at is this whole idea of Jesus passing over from from earth to heaven, passing over from... Um, his death to new life, passing over from the, this land to the heavenly reality, passing from um, um, sin, from the sin that he accepted to conquering that and then passing into life, passing over to the Father. So you have this Passover theme that is based in the Passover of the Old Testament where the Hebrews came from slavery to freedom and from um, also, the angel of death that killed the firstborn and then prevented the Hebrew children from, from dying if they had the blood on the doorpost. So you have the passing over the angel of death and you have the passing over of slavery to freedom and the passing from Egypt to the promised land. Well, in Jesus, you have a Passover that is greater than that because it's a passing over to the new land of heaven, it's conquering sin and death, and it's Jesus passing over to the Father. Okay, so he kind of takes that Passover imagery and, and kind of attaches a lot more significance to it. Okay, so you've also got in, in Luke's description of the Passover, it's twice as long as Matthew and Mark. And so when you read the description of the, the Eucharist, for example, you'll notice that there are a few more steps. 
So I'll just read this. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it again until there is the fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from this time on, I shall not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this whole idea of the Eucharist being part of that, that heavenly banquet, which inaugurates the new covenant. Okay, so the old covenant, which would have been the law of Moses, the new covenant is Jesus who um, takes that fulfillment of the old covenant and expands it so that it includes salvation and also brings together that fulfillment of all the prophets and the promises of God. All right, and like I said, this is Kind of like, I don't have time to go into theology of the Eucharist, but a lot of that is based on Luke because he's got um, some of the most detailed descriptions of what that means to be in the new covenant. Okay, so, so we have this part in this active remembrance and being in the presence of the Lord is connected to that Last Supper and how Jesus told his disciples to do that in remembrance of him. And that remembrance means that those saving events will be made present for all generations into the future because it's now part of that new covenant that Jesus brings. Okay, so I, I have a description on the website that has a description of the Eucharist, and if you want a fuller description of what all that means, that would be a good place to go. But the bottom line is that Jesus brings the Eucharist into the heart of the message of the cross and how salvation is brought into that. And it's part of his sacrifice, and it's also part of the eventual resurrection. All right, so where am I at here? That's the Passover. Okay, so I mentioned that the crowds re- responded more favorably toward Jesus in Luke's gospel, especially. And this is, there are a couple verses. You'll even notice this in the first part of the Passion. You know, that the leaders, for example, they wanted to find a way to hand Jesus over, but they were afraid of the people, you know, because Jesus was liked by the crowds. He was respected. He was a rabbi, and the crowds tended to look at him favorably. And so that's why they did the uh, uh, thing with Judas. They kind of were working behind the scenes to allow that to happen. Also, you have in uh, Luke chapter twenty-three, eighteen, they all shouted out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. And uh, Herod and Pilate both find him innocent, and the religious leaders are judged more harshly in Luke's gospel than like Pilate and Herod, and also the crowds. But eventually it is also true that the crowds went along with what the religious leaders and those who had it in for Jesus wanted. And so the crowds eventually gave in and, and followed along. And so, but at least in Luke's gospel, you know, it wasn't like from the beginning the crowds were not on Jesus' side. And so, anyway, you get a bit of that going on there. Okay, so Peter in, in the gospel of Luke is kind of an interesting character too because he is considered the leader. Now, Matthew's gospel actually expresses it much more clearly. Um, with Peter being the first of the disciples. But in Luke's gospel, you have Peter who is considered the leader and the one who Satan is going to actually go after as well as Judas. So Satan seeks out Peter, and then Jesus even warns Peter about this. And uh, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31-32, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you Okay, that, the, the words all of you is, is important because it's not just you, Peter, it's you, you disciples. But he's saying this to Peter because Peter is going to be the one who will have to, um, after Jesus' death, kind of regroup the disciples and then lead them as the leader of the church. And so he says, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed that your own faith may not fail. And once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. Okay, now, remember when I talked about Jesus being someone who prays? 
And another thing to keep in mind, that everything Jesus prayed for in Luke's gospel comes true. And so you'll, you'll notice this too. I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And then all of a sudden you find out, well, wait, Peter's faith didn't actually fail. He stumbled, he fell, but he didn't totally fail. Um, the difference between Peter and Judas, of course, is that Peter knew how to repent. And once he did that, then, of course, he was able to be brought up back to where Jesus wanted him to be. And the idea that it's not just for him, Peter, but it's for all the church. You know, that his faith is, is more important than just his own personal faith. His faith is something that will strengthen all of the believers. And so, so Jesus uh, points that out in that prayer. So here's a quote that has to do with the suffering servant fulfillment. Okay, now the suffering servant, there will be a description of this in Isaiah. Um, but in, in Luke twenty two thirty seven says that, Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, namely, he was counted among the wicked. And indeed, what was written about me is coming to fulfillment. Okay, he's going back to Isaiah 53, 12. So this is uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, I will give him his portion among the great, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty, because he surrendered himself to death and was counted among the wicked. And he shall take away the sins of many and win the pardon for their offenses. So Isaiah's um, suffering servant motif is something that Luke picks up and, and brings into that. And of course, Jesus recognizes this and says it explicitly. But in Luke's gospel, you tend to have that emphasized quite a bit more than some of the other gospels. Okay. Okay, now we have the beginning of the of the passion. Jesus is in the Mount of Olives. He's praying once again. And there's, you know, kind of like the prayer in crisis. And the idea of Jesus, for example, when he's, he's sweating blood, that that's mentioned in Luke's gospel. And there is actually a medical condition where someone who has a lot of anxiety, that you actually can sweat blood. You know, that, that actually is something that can medically happen. But even if it wasn't for that particular reason, the idea there is Jesus showing Jesus' agony and that, that the blood and the sweat, of course, is also symbolic of baptism and Eucharist, but, but the, the blood and the sweat just shows you know, the depths of his agony when he's in the garden praying. Um, there's also a bit of a parallel between the Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden you have this, this creation that took place and now with Jesus... Um, the beginning of his cross and everything, you're going to have his death and resurrection as being this new Eden. And that's when, when God, in the new covenant, recreates the world. And so it's no accident that they talk about this Gethsemane as being like a garden. Also in John's gospel, John really picks up on this and takes it even to a, a bigger degree, where Mary Magdalene's looking around for Jesus and saying, where did they put him? And, and I thought he was the gardener, you know, because it's the whole idea of this garden thing. And... And uh, once again, that's, you know, it, it goes back to this Eden um, in the original creation and then Jesus' new creation in the new covenant. Um, another thing that's interesting in Luke's gospel is you have this angel that comes down to strengthen him and comfort him. Um, I remember actually having a conversation with someone, a friend of mine, and he goes, there's no angel that came down and comforted Jesus. I'm going, yeah, there was, you know. And, and he's going, well, that would make it seem like Jesus, like, needed an angel to help him out. I'm like, well, yeah. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, Jesus in his humanity, he really was suffering. You know, even in the garden, even before he actually went to the cross, he was, you know, his, his prayer and his agony and his suffering was something. He knew that he was going to be going to his death and he was praying so that he would have the strength from his father and then the angel, of course, was sent to strengthen him in his humanity so that he could endure that. And then that's also when he was praying that this cup should pass him by. Um, the cup is symbolic of death. And so that's why when, for example, when the sons of De Zebedee, um, Jesus says, can you accept this cup you know, that I will have to drink? And they say, we can. Well, of course, they say that on the spur of the moment, but 
Anyway, that's, that's just a description of the death, you know, that his death. So there also is the mention of the other disciples that are called to stay awake um, in their prayer and to be alert. Of course, that's an ongoing theme in the gospel as well, that we should be as disciples awake and alert. Um, there's also this uh, um, int- inst- interesting thing where Jesus goes on his knees to pray because the typical prayer of a Jewish person in those times and in those days would be standing. So the idea of him praying on his knees, people would pray on their knees when it was an, a, an especially agonizing prayer or an intense prayer. Okay, so um, Jews typically would pray standing, and uh, they also would pray kneeling. But when they're praying kneeling, it was, it was more intense and more agonizing, and, and uh, this just kind of shows the whole scene there in the garden of what he was going through going through and what he would go through. Okay. Um, Here you have the betrayal by a kiss. Now, we all know the story of Judas kissing him and the betrayal by that. Um, What we don't always get is the historical, cultural context of that because to be betrayed by someone by a kiss was considered, you know, the worst possible way you could be betrayed because here's someone who is saying, I'm your friend, you know, I'm with you, and it's, a, it's an intimate sign of affection and connection and loyalty. And then after doing that, just totally turning it all upside down. And so we don't, we don't always get the cultural ramifications of that, but just try to think of it in that term, you know, that there's no other way to betray someone other than by a kiss. So anyway, that's why Jesus even mentioned this. So in in 22, chapter 22, 47 and 48, um, while he was still speaking, a crowd approached, and in front was one of the twelve, a man named Judas. He went up to Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, betrayal by a kiss was, was just considered an act of cruelty, and, and Jesus was calling him on it. Okay, so the other part that's... Uh, um, of course, this is in, in John's gospel as well, but um, you've got Jesus who, you know, they bring the sword out and chop the, the servant's ear. Well, the thing about that is, remember Jesus' teaching when he's, he would say that, you know, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, and, you know, no vengeance, and turn the other cheek, and, and nonviolence as, as a method of, of dealing with violence, and so here, he actually tells them to stop when they pull out their swords and start, you know, some of the disciples were going to fight their way to, you know, to prevent Jesus from being arrested. He stops them, heals the, the servant's ear, and that, once again, shows that Jesus practices what he preaches. You know, that even when he finds himself in a place where his life is threatened, he still continues to live according to what he taught. All right, so, that, once again, these are just... Uh, Symbolic actions that sh- that show that look, Jesus didn't just preach something and do something different; that he really was a person of integrity and he lived that out. Okay, so the uh, the disciples in Luke's gospel they're they're treated treated a little uh, more nicely, and because uh, Luke's a nice guy, you know, and they don't flee like Mark and Luke's gospel; they just re- withdraw. They, they're fearful, and they, they keep their distance. And the reason why is because of Jesus' prayer. Remember when he prayed that their faith would not, you know, get the better of them? And so Jesus' prayer is showing its effect, in, its effect in, in the lives of the disciples, even in their lowest moment. And so Jesus' prayer is, is doing this. It's helping Jesus', I mean, uh, Peter's denial to not be something that will totally overcome him. Now, if you're looking at how the disciples are in general, in Mark's gospel, the disciples can do nothing wrong. I mean, nothing right. They, uh, they basically, they're just a bum- bunch of bumbling idiots. You know, They just can't get it right. In Matthew's gospel, they make a lot of mistakes, but because the disciples have the authority from Jesus himself, uh, Matthew shows them as being people who are very capable and worthy of being followed. Because he, you know, afterward, when Jesus rise, rose from the dead and, you know, the disciples have to take over his mission, the, the church needed to be able to trust them as people who would be able to do that. Now, 
Luke's, I think, probably the most favorable of the disciples. They don't always get everything, but at the same time, for the most part, they tend to be treated pretty favorably, even though they make mistakes and they sin. You know, and, and most of the mistakes and sin have to do with misunderstanding um, Jesus and, and going after positions of power and authority rather than service like Jesus demonstrated in his own, his own ministry. Okay, so now we've got the trial. Now, the charges against Jesus change because at first, Jesus is being charged it religiously, so he's being charged in the house of the, you know, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and so um, they they have these accusations, and they're like saying that he calls himself the Son of God, and are you the prophet? You know, and if you are the prophet, and here are the temptations once again coming back. Remember when Satan was um, tempting Jesus? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off of here, and then you know your father will protect you. Well, here you have the, the, uh, in the trial, the religious trial, they're doing the same sort of thing. If you are the Messiah, you know, so they're continuing that, that type of language. And it's the, the same sort of thing that he will be tempted from the cross even. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, so it's, it, all those go back to the temptation originally, but they keep, you know, Satan's on the warpath now, so he's going to really be um, hitting it heavy. Now, you also have um, Luke twenty two sixty seven. Do I have that one in there? Nope, I guess i got to go up. Nope, I don't. So this one says, okay, so they say, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he replied to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. You know, but that, that formula of if you are, then, you know, it's, it's kind of like testing Jesus. Like, if you are the Messiah, then tell us or show us or do something. And they say the same thing here. Uh, Luke twenty three thirty five. The people stood by and watched. The rulers, meanwhile, sneered at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God. So here's Jesus on the cross, and those leaders are doing the same sort of thing. They're, they're mocking him by saying, If you are, then... You know, so it goes back to those temptations that Jesus had in, in the beginning there. Okay, then when Jesus comes to Pilate and Herod, all of a sudden the charges change. They, be, they become political charges. So they brought charges against him saying, we found this man misleading our people. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and maintains that he is a Messiah, a king. All right, so see how they did that? At first they were saying, oh, you're saying that you're the son of God. You're saying that you're the Messiah and this sort of thing. And then once they get him to Pilate, they change the charges because they need to make it political. So they say that, you know, he's saying he's, he's the Caesar, you know, he's a threat to Caesar or he's a threat to Herod, the king. Of course, uh, Herod at first was a little excited because he heard of Jesus doing all these miracles and he wanted Jesus to perform. When Jesus didn't perform, he just sent him back to Pilate. And then you've got an interesting thing because this is where two of the leaders come together. Pilate and Herod, where they were uh, supposedly enemies or opponents up until that point. And you can, you can imagine if you've got um, Herod, who was supposed to be the king of all of, of Israel, but uh, because Rome didn't trust him, they put Pilate in there to be the procurator of, of the area around Judea, um, that, that there would be some animosity between them. But apparently their collaboration in this brought them together so that they were kind of buddies again. Well, that actually goes to Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. And it says, Why do the nations protest, and the peoples grumble in vain? Kings on earth rise up, and princes plot together against the Lord and his anointed. So it's part of a fulfillment passage that goes to Psalm, the second Psalm. You know, so you're going to see a lot of that fulfillment that happens here. Also, when Jesus is being questioned, he is the, he's being silent. He's that suffering servant of, of Isaiah. So though he was treated harshly, he submitted and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep before his shears, he was silent and opened not his mouth. So here's Jesus, the lamb of God, and Jesus being the, the suffering servant who was being quiet even, in his, even when others were accusing him. Now, Pilate was being the politician 
I know that uh, you'll read different things on, on Pilate and all this, and sometimes you get the impression that, well, Pilate was just weak, you know? Because it kind of seems that way if, if you just kind of read the gospel, and you, even other commentaries will say that sort of thing, that, oh, Pilate was just weak, he didn't have the fortitude to make the right decision. Well, Pilate was being a politician because it was around the time of Passover, and Pilate knew that the crowds really did like Jesus, and so he didn't want to just, you know, have Jesus crucified when it might cause a revolt, especially being that it was close to Passover. And so Jesus, um, Pilate acts prudently by basically throwing it back into the hands of the Jewish leaders and then the Jewish people. Are you sure? Wait, what prime? I, he hasn't done anything wrong. And, and so they basically get them to take the responsibility for Jesus' death rather than him. So it's not looked at as something where you have big, bad, powerful Rome taking one of the Jewish people and crucifying him. And so when Pilate washes his hands, he's basically saying, you guys are the ones who want it. You're the ones who are going to do it. But even up to that point, he wanted to make sure that there was going to be no consequence or revolt or anything like that before he actually went down that road. And so Pilate and his questioning and by saying, okay, we, we have this thing where we can release one. You know, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? He was, he was basically trying to appease the people so that, that there would be some relative peace around Passover because if you disrupt that, especially around Passover, you could have a full revolt. And so Pilate was just being a good politician more than anything. And actually, if you read historically, Pilate was not a nice guy. And he wasn't considered a very um, meek person either. Um, he was known for doing all kinds of ruthless things, and he wasn't the best leader in the world. But in, in this case, he was actually doing what would be politically smart for a Roman leader in his position to do. Okay, so this is also part of this injustice. Interestingly enough, Barabbas was also Jesus Barabbas, Bar, Barabbas, you know, Bar Abba. He was the, uh, the Jesus that was the murderer, and then you have the Jesus who was you know, the upright and innocent person. So which one are the people going to choose to set free? And of course, we all know they chose the murderer. You know, well, once again, that's just kind of a, a testimony of human nature that people will often pick injustice over justice and free the guilty rather than the innocent. And so this is just showing the contrast between Jesus as Messiah and the people who are rejecting that prophet. Okay, so where am I at? Um, I was going to talk a little bit about just crucifixion in general, because there's a little bit of confusion on this. And I think part of the problem is that there's just so much uh, garbage history out there. And uh, just to give you examples, like uh, the Da Vinci Code, you know, it says Jesus never really died, you know, he was... They, he just kind of faked the death, and they revived him afterwards, and he married Mary Magdalene and went off and lived in Egypt for a while and then had kids. And, you know. But the problem is people read some of this stuff, and they think it's like real history. And I remember talking with someone once, and she goes, I wonder what you, Father, would think about this, you know, the Da Vinci Code, because it was kind of popular at the time. So it might be an interesting book. It might be a good book of fiction, but it is fiction. It's not real history. She goes, of course you would say that. You know, the idea is that anything the church says, you know, is necessarily conspiratorial. And uh, there's, there's this weird bias nowadays where real history is often foregone for something that's called newer novel. And so they've had a lot of these sort of things going on. Like, for example, some people said, oh, Jesus never really even existed. You know, it's just, you know, the disciples made him up. Well, the problem with that is you, you've got Roman historians that talk about him being crucified and and, and died under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Tacitus is one of those, Josephus is another. And so the idea that Jesus never existed is historically not a good argument. You know, most real historians would say that's not an argument. But, you know, if someone comes out with something that's controversial, it makes the news. Um, there's also this thing with, you know, Jesus never really dying. And the Romans were really good at crucifying. They, they, knew, what it, they knew how to do it. Um, but the Romans didn't invent it. It actually came about um, with the Parthians and the Persians. Um, they developed, they developed crucifix crucifixion as a form of torture. Uh, because if you get 
crucified, you can literally stay on that cross for days, suffering, suffering and agonizing. And they would always make sure that if you did a crucifixion, you would always put them in a very public and visible spot as a deterrent so that anyone else who happened to see the person being crucified or the people being crucified, it would be a deterrent from them doing what these people did. And typically, people who were crucified were considered political um, outcasts or uprisers, usurpers. And so, so crucifixion was something that um, was very common, but it was also very brutal, and it was considered a deterrent. And it was possible, actually, um, for someone to be able to live after crucifixion, but you would be killed before you would get to that point. Because the whole thing, when you hear about them breaking the legs, for example... Um, they would break the legs just before the Sabbath sundown because it was considered sacrilegious to allow someone to continually to be on the cross during the Sabbath. So the, the Roman soldiers would come and break the legs of the people who were being crucified outside the city walls. And it, once you break the legs, you no longer have the strength to lift yourself up to get a breath of air. So you suffocate. So with the crucifixion, you're... Your, your hands are either nailed or tied, and you have to pull yourself up and push up with your feet so you can get a breath. And so if you have the little foot thing that, that you see on crucifixes, that actually intensifies and makes longer the duration of a crucifixion. If you didn't have any foot thing, you would just suffocate and die very quickly. But the fact that you have to pull yourself up to get a breath every time, you just slowly um, die an agonizing death. But, of course, Jewish law says that you have to be killed before the Sabbath starts, before sundown. And so the soldiers would come and break the legs of the people so that they would just die quickly. But then when they came to Jesus, they were thinking of doing that, but they noticed he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs, which, of course, was a fulfillment of the unblemished lamb, right? You, you couldn't have uh, a lamb with broken legs being part of you know, the, the Passover lamb. So that was, that was a prophecy-type thing, too. Um, another thing is, I was actually reading once, this was a few years ago, but he was someone who, be, who was kind of controversial. He said, oh, when, uh, when people were crucified, they just threw them in the ditch. They wouldn't have had any burials or anything like that. It's impossible for anyone to have known uh, whatever happened to Jesus after he died. Well, this certain historian or Bible scholar um, didn't know the culture because historically the Jews, they had a sacred land and so they also did not permit anyone to be thrown into a ditch because that's considered a sacrilege against the holy land, you know, the sacred land. And um, especially on the Sabbath, you know, the, the idea of taking people um, who were crucified and throwing them in a ditch just never would happen because historically what would happen is that even the people who were accused criminals would have to be taken off the cross and they would have to be buried. After a year, they go back, they take their bones, they put them in a, um, a box, a cophicus, and in that box, the family would be able to take those bones and keep them or bury them, and they'd bury them. They had special sacred uh, spots where they would bury the bones of their ancestors, whether they're criminals or not. And it wasn't necessarily to honor the person who was, who was crucified. It was the idea that this land is holy and we don't want to desecrate it by you know, allowing someone to be, like, thrown into the land without a proper burial. Because if you don't do a proper burial, even for a criminal, it's a sin against God and it's a sin against the law. Okay, you following me here there? You know, so people who would say that, you know, Jesus never was buried, for example, you know, they, they just don't know their, their history and their culture there. And they actually even have... Um, they even have some boxes with bones where there was a piece of a nail where someone was crucified, and they, they actually have this. So um, it's something that has historically been shown to be the case. Um, also, the duty to bury the person actually goes to the people who accused or were responsible for them being killed in the first place. So the Sanhedrin, for example, in Jesus' example, part of their duty as Sanhedrin was to make sure that the criminals that they put to death would be buried. So Joseph of Arimathea, who happened to be a member of the Sanhedrin, he took on that responsibility and made sure that Jesus was buried. Now, we think of the, the burial of Jesus as being like a big cave or something, you know, like a huge cave that Jesus was put in. 
But those were very small little caves, you know, and then they put them in and they would have a big stone that they would roll over. Um, but uh, the, the whole thing was is that they'd have these small caves that you'd be put in and you would stay in it for about a year until you'd go back and then the body would decompose and then you would go back and receive the bones. Um, you'd also have the prepping for burial, like the women who went to anoint Jesus. So it's a sacred duty to go and do the anointing. Um, but they couldn't do it during the Sabbath, so they needed to wait until the Sabbath was over. And so that's why on the first day of the week, you know, Mary and the other Mary, there were a lot of Marys back then, went to, get, to do the, uh, the anointing with the oils and all, because you, uh, you know, that's a way of, of anointing the, the body for burial. And that's why they were concerned about who's going to roll the stone back for us, because they needed to... Uh, they needed to be able to roll the stone back so they could fulfill this sacred obligation of preparing the body for burial. So that, that idea of um, the sacred burial and all this goes back to the point that um, some of these um, historians who just kind of say things and it makes the news doesn't mean, because, just because it makes the news doesn't mean it's accurate. And I notice like if you watch the History Channel, they, they mess up all the time. Um, I don't know why they don't get better people, but I think it's because they like the controversy. So that's my guess. But there was it, uh, I'm, I, I'm forgetting the term, but is it Rockham, Occam's razor that says sometimes the most reasonable explanation is the most obvious? Occam's razor. Occam's razor. Yeah, but is that what it is? Okay, well, anyway, it's kind of that way. Think about it like a lot of the scripture stuff. Whenever you hear someone say they got a brand new theory, um, every once in a while we learn something new. But oftentimes... It's just something that's controversial. Like when they found that box that said, here lies Jesus, um, son of Joseph, brother of, I don't know. Anyway, they found it was a forgery. Um, But the thing was, because it it, it implied that Jesus had all these brothers and sisters, of course, they wanted to turn that into a big news story. And then when they found it was a forgery, of course, no one knew because they didn't report it. But anyway, just kind of keep that in mind. So... The, the thing about the crucifixion is the Romans knew what they were doing, and they wouldn't allow someone to not be crucified. If they're going to crucify someone, they're going to make sure they do it. And it's such a brutal death. A lot of people actually, they would die even when they were scourged, and then they would die when they were crucified. And if they didn't die when they were crucified, they'd break their legs. And it's not like Jesus is going to you know, fake death and get revived and move to you know, Egypt and marry Mary Magdalene. It's just, that's just like crazy. But anyway... Craziness is out there. All right, so I better get moving here. Simon of Cyrene. Um, Let's see, I talked a little bit about, where am I at here, the cross. I talked a little bit about how Jesus was mocked, and this is kind of part of the whole suffering servant, and it's also part of Jesus the prophet, because the prophets were often mocked as well. So you have the rulers saying that. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Um, the soldiers offering him vinegar. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then you have even the thieves. Um, you've got the good thief who stole salvation. Anyway, and then you've got the one that, that starts mocking him as well. So here's someone else being crucified with Jesus. And the, the other repentant thief actually scolds the one who's mocking him. He's saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. You know, this is like the other... He's not saying that sincerely. He's just mocking him. The other, however, rebuking him said in reply, have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. So, anyway, this goes actually to Luke chapter 17, verse 3 says, be on guard if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And so it's just showing this, this uh, repentant thief who is actually doing the Christian thing. Not only did he repent, but he was helping his brother to be able to be rebuked so he could have the possibility of repentance. So anyway, um, the, death itself, uh, the death of Jesus, you have this, this dark, gloomy, um, day of the Lord thing happening. And that all goes back to Joel. Um, Joel, the prophet, talked about this great and mighty and terrible day of the Lord. And it's descriptive 
of what would happen when there's this huge injustice and then God himself will intervene and exact justice. So here's a description from Joel chapter 2, verse 10. Before them the earth trembles, the heavens shake, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withhold their brightness. So you can see the, the idea here is that, that heaven and earth are crying out at the injustice. And it's being shown in these cosmic signs. Um, you also have this veil in the temple that tears. You know, that was a big, heavy, and uh, long veil that would hang down. And it was separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Uh, the Holy of Holies is traditionally where God's presence was. You know, in the old, old days, it was where the Ten Commandments were, but after the, you know, after the, the Ark was lost, they, they came back and rebuilt the new temple after the Babylonian exile. There was nothing in the, you know, in the Holy of Holies other than this idea of the presence of God. But the idea of that, that veil being torn apart in two shows that there's no longer this separation between God and his people because Jesus' death conquered that separation you know, made it obsolete. So now for, for all time, there would be this connection with the Father because Jesus' death and later resurrection is going to bring those two together. All right, so that's the significance of the veil. All right, so now... Oh, by the way, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So now look at uh, Simon of Cyrene here. As they led him away, they took hold of a certain Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country, and after laying the cross on him, they made him carry it behind Jesus. Notice that he's behind Jesus, because that shows the fulfillment of Jesus' own preaching. Carry his own cross and come after me. See? So it's like, uh, so Simon, and actually it's interesting too when they, they talk about Simon of Cyrene and his kids, uh, Rufus and Alexander, I think. But what's funny, I don't hear too many people naming their kids Rufus. But, but the fact that they actually knew his kids meant that this had an impact on Simon of Cyrene. And he and his family probably did have a conversion experience that came about through that. Because they were from Libya, and when they came all the way to Jerusalem, they were on a pilgrimage to offer sacrifice for Passover. And... Typically what people do is they'd come offer sacrifice for Passover and then go home. But the fact that they had this experience when they were there, and then the, the church later is writing about you know, he and his, and his kids and they know their names, implies that they had a conversion experience and became Christians themselves. So that act of following Jesus and carrying his cross led to his um, conversion. So kind of an interesting little detail. And... He did the cross. Well, let's go to the death. Uh, Jesus' last prayer. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. All right, so Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And then he breathed his last. Well, this actually comes from Psalm 31. And you'll notice, like, for example, in, in Jesus' death that, that he has these expressions or prayers. And oftentimes those prayers are parts of psalms, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if, if all we knew was that one phrase, we would think that Jesus was despairing. What he was, he was calling to mind Psalm 22. And so when he says that, he's calling to mind the entire psalm. Now, if you're being crucified, you don't have the energy to recite the entire psalm. So just reciting at a verse shows that he's holding that psalm in his prayer. And at the end of that psalm, talks about how God's servant is vindicated. And, and so anyway, um, we have to kind of fill in the context here. Well, the same thing when it comes to this prayer in, in Luke. You know, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the faithful servant who commends himself totally into the Father's hands. And in the end, God vindicates his, his servant. Okay, then you have some of the first stages of repentance. So after Jesus dies, you know, because up to that point, um, you, the people were not acting very repentant. They were mocking him, and they were you know, kind of getting into the whole crucifixion even. 
But after he dies and they see these great signs and they see Jesus as that suffering servant, they actually have the first signs of repentance. So you have the centurion who witnessed what has happened and he said that this man was innocent beyond doubt. Which is slightly different than Mark's gospel. Is this man clearly is the son of God. You know where Luke says, this man is innocent beyond doubt. Because remember, Luke has this great thing about justice and innocence and the suffering servant and it shows that that's part of that, that fulfillment of the prophecy. And then the last couple of verses, um, Luke chap, um, chapter 23, verses 48 and 49. When all the people who had gathered for this uh, spectacle saw what had happened, they returned home beating their breasts. All right, that's a sign of repentance. You know how, uh, well, in the old days we used to do that a little more, I think, but when we do that, you know, for my fault, for my fault, for my grand fault, you know, in Spanish we still do it. Por mi culpa, por mi culpa, por mi gran culpa. But anyway, the beating the breast is a sign of repentance. And then all his acquaintances stood at a distance. Okay, remember that standing at the distance thing? You know, because they, you know, they weren't totally lost. Jesus prayed for them, so they're just at the distance. Including the women who had followed him from Galilee and saw these events. Well, Luke loves women. He's always including them. So uh, anyway, that's the basic thing. But the, the whole point of the, of the cross is that it's, especially in Luke's gospel, that here is the prophet who was rejected and like a suffering servant that was predicted in the Old Testament, he went to his death willingly, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. But uh, the vindication of the suffering servant and the prophet, of the innocent person, um, will actually effect salvation for his people. And those of us who are disciples and follow after his example in service and love, we also will follow him to the Passover, the new covenant, the promised land of heaven. So it just kind of includes all that, but it does it in, in, a, in a way with a lot of symbolism and a lot of history. All right, so thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.